1: Welcome to the reading of the New York Times for Monday, December 5th, 2022. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio Eye by the Lexington Herald-Leader. Your reader for today is Mary Fullington. We'll start today's reading with the Merriam-Webster Word of the Day. which is abdicate. Abdicate is a verb spelled A-B-D-I-C-A-T-E. To abdicate is to renounce or relinquish a position of usually sovereign power. It can also mean to cast off, discard. As an example, the king was forced to abdicate after long-standing controversy. She abdicated her position in response to the allegations. There can be serious repercussions when someone abdicates their responsibilities. The Merriam-Webster word for today is abdicate. The articles we will begin reading From the front page of the New York Times for today, December 5th, above the fold are as follows. War and sanctions threaten to thrust Russia's economy back in time. Iran has abolished morality police, an official suggests, after months of protests. Warnock and Walker at finish line in Georgia stick to their strategies. A new clash between faith and gay rights arrives at a changed Supreme Court. War and Sanctions threaten to Thrust Russia's Economy Back in Time by Valerie Hopkins and Anatoly Kormenev from Kaluga, Russia. Valerie Volodkin, Volodin a welder at a sprawling Volkswagen plant in Western Russia, relaxed for most of the summer at his daka, or weekend house, planting his garden and looking after his children. Mr. Volodin, 41, had little choice. The car factory closed down in March, joining more than 1,000 multinational companies that had curtailed operations in Russia because of its invasion of Ukraine. Since then... He has been sitting at home while Volkswagen looks for a buyer. He goes into the plant in Kaluga's industrial zone once a month to collect 50,000 rubles, about $800, a payment required by Russian labor law that is the equivalent of two-thirds of his previous salary. We go into work, but the plant stands empty, Mr. Volodin said in an interview. He does not mind a temporary break from the physically demanding work, but he is not sure how to plan for the future. Quote, we live day to day for now, he said. His experience is playing out across Russia for hundreds of thousands of workers after the West imposed sweeping economic sanctions that were intended to hobble Moscow's ability to wage war and to undercut public support for President Vladimir v. Putin. More than nine months after the invasion, neither the war effort nor the economy has collapsed, and the economic pain is still limited for many Russians. Mr. Putin has avoided any substantive domestic pressure that would threaten his leadership. But the impact of what some have described as the most coordinated and deepest economic sanctions in modern history is evident in communities across Russia and the worst may be yet to come. The sanctions have stymied Russia's faltering attempts to modernize its economy along Western lines and to catch up to European living standards after the fall of the Soviet Union, said Vladislav Inozemtsev, the Washington-based director of the Center for Post-Industrial Studies, a Russian research group. That has dimmed the hope that the country could become a modern, prosperous nation in the near term. Quote, the slogan now is keep things from getting worse and that's an important shift. Mr. Inozemsev said, even the government has stopped betting on national development. Beneath the, v- the veneer of normalcy, he said, key drivers of growth like technology transfer and investment are eroding. Quote, It's like a cake that was dropped on the table, and it looks more or less fine. But inside, it's all blown up, Mr. Inozemtsev said. The most visible and dramatic impact has been on manufacturing, a sector that employs 10 million Russians, and that has been the centerpiece of Mr. Putin's ambitious program to diversify the economy away from reliance on oil and gas exports. The auto industry accounts for a large percentage of those workers, Car makers employ 300,000 Russians, according to the country's statistics agency, and the association representing their interests say that up to 3.5 million more work in related industries. By September, output in the auto industry was down 77% year-over-year, year, while car sales have plummeted 60%, compared with the same period in 2021. A primary reason is that Russian industries are highly dependent on Western components. Even Mr. Putin has acknowledged the problem, admitting last week that in some sectors, dependence on imported parts is as high as 90%. To adapt, Russia is turning inward, cutting ties with the rest of the world and moving toward an economic model similar to one adopted by Iran, where political legitimacy rests on providing citizens with the essentials, rather than spurring transformative growth, Mr. Inozemsev said. Russia's government was better prepared to withstand the sanctions than many in the West expected. Since the start of the war, the International Monetary Fund has revised its economic outlook for Russia upward twice and is forecasting a 3.5% decline in gross domestic product this year, similar to the government's projections. This decline, while a major reversal from pre-war growth expectations, stands in sharp contrast to the double-digits collapse of Venezuela's economic output after a wave of American sanctions in 2019. Quote, sanctions have not destroyed the resilience of the Russian financial system, nor have they impacted macroeconomic stability, Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin said last week during a government meeting. A combination of high oil revenues, large currency reserves, and an expert team of economic officials has allowed Mr. Putin to soften the blow, much to the frustration of some Western leaders who had hoped the sanctions would have more bite by now. But the loss of investment, technology, and skills caused by the sanctions is likely to echo across generations, depriving many Russians of a chance at a better economic future, experts said. In two thousand nine, when Volkswagen launched full production cycles in Kaluga, Mr. Velodin not only got a job, but also unexpected support. I got paid to get trained for my job, he said, still impressed. When a robot replaced him, he was retrained. Those were boom times for Kaluga, an industrial region about one hundred and twenty miles south of Moscow. The former governor actively courted Western investors, learning English and building a modern airport with several flights a week to Germany. He transformed a regional economy that had been 80% oriented toward the Soviet military-industrial complex into one connected with the West. Pharmaceutical companies flocked to the Kaluga region, which has a population of one million, and so did auto manufacturers. Volkswagen hired about 4,200 workers. Volvo and Stellantis, which produced and sold the Peugeot, Citroën, Opel, Jeep, and Fiat brands in Russia, also established operations in the region. An ecosystem of suppliers and related industries sprang up to serve, to serve them, employing at least 25,000 people, according to Dmitry Trudvoy, the chairman of the Independent Workers Association trade union. Courses in German and other foreign languages at the local university were a pipeline to an office job with the companies. It seemed as if a new, modern business model was being constructed step-by-step in the region, a hint of how Russia's economy might evolve. By 2020, Volkswagen's output alone represented about 13% of the Kaluga region's entire industrial production. Now, most of the car makers in the region have halted operations. And Mr. Trudevoy said the workers had no idea who might take over the Western factories and whether they would keep their jobs. Quote, they are nervous and scared for their future, he said. Kaluga's industrial output fell 30% between February and July this year, compared with the same period the year before, according to Rostat, Russia's statistics agency, becoming among the region's hardest hit. Russian state firms and the government have vowed to replace the lost output with local brands. But there have been multiple signs of regression. In June, Avtozav, which makes Russia's best-known domestic car brand, the Lada, announced that its cars would meet only 1996 emission standards and have no passenger-side airbags. In a symbolic move... An Aztva's affiliate, Kamaz, announced that it would use a Moscow plant vacated by Renault after the invasion to relaunch the production of a Soviet-era car brand, Moskvich, or Moskovite, which had long been an almost comical byword for the deficiencies of communist consumer goods. The slowdown in auto manufacturing also means that even Russia's police will have a hard time acquiring new patrol cars. The Interior Ministry has been unable to find a supplier for the 2,800 new vehicles required for the traffic police, according to the Russian newspaper Kommersant. Kamaz claims it will produce 50,000 quote, modern, comfortable, high-quality and safe cars in the plant next year, including many with electric motors. To aid these efforts, the Russian government plans to channel about $500 million to domestic carmakers. But modern history offers few examples of successful attempts to replace imported Western technology with local substitutes, said Mr. Inozemsev, the economist. Russian companies lack the know-how and skilled workers to replace Western capital in technology-intensive sectors. Relying on homegrown substitutes will result in primitivization, said Mr. Inozemsev. Production will not disappear, he said but it will gradually degrade, resulting in lower quality and quantity of products that will progressively reduce the standard of life of Russians. In Kaluga, the collapse of the auto industry is having wide-ranging collateral effects. The real estate market ground to a halt after the war started, said Kirill Gusev, editor of the online real estate site Kaluga House. It started improving over the summer as people got used to a new normal, but then collapsed after Mr. Putin announced a military call-up of hundreds of thousands of men in September. Real estate is essentially long-term planning, but right now we are in a place where you can't do that at all, Mr. Gusev said. We all saw how easy it was for normality to collapse. Quote, after the mobilization, the banks stopped giving out loans because the clients could be called up, he added. Natalia Zubarevich, a geography professor who tracks social economic data at Moscow State University, said, What we're seeing is falling income, broad depression, less consumption. All this will negatively impact the economy of the country. Kirill Mikulin, who owns a popular bar in Kaluga, feels the hit. He had already adapted by finding substitutions for half the beers at his pub, which he had imported. Buoyed by the seeming return to normalcy over the summer, he opened Hops and Hopes, which sells 13 craft beers on tap and 250 more in bottles. On a recent evening, his store in the city center did not attract any paying customers. Quote, we believe in the new year, he said, hoping sales would be up ahead of the holiday. Quote, but after that, we might be screwed. Next article. Iran has abolished morality police, an official suggests after months of protests. By Vivian Yi and Farnaz Fasihi. A senior Iranian official said this weekend that Iran had abolished the morality police, the state media reported, after months of protests set off by the death of a young woman who was detained by the force. For supposedly violating the country's strict Islamic dress laws. The morality police, quote, was abolished by the same authorities who installed it, Attorney General Mohammad Javad Montazeri said on Saturday during a meeting at which officials were discussing the unrest, according to state media reports. It was unclear whether the statement amounted to a final decision by the theocratic government, which has neither announced the abolition of the morality police nor denied it. But if the force is abolished, the change will be unlikely to appease protesters, who are still clashing with other security forces and have become so emboldened that some are calling for an end of the Islamic Republic. The morality police is overseen by the Iranian police, not the Attorney General, and there were suggestions on Sunday that the government might be trying to play down the significance of Mr. Montessori's remarks. One state television channel, the Arabic language Al-Alam, said that the comments had been taken out of context and other state channels said the government was not backing down from the mandatory hijab law. Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, when asked about the abolishment of the morality police at at a news conference in Belgrade, Serbia, where he was on an official visit, did not deny it, but said, In Iran, everything is moving forward well in the framework of democracy and freedom. For his part, Mr. Montessori said on Saturday that the judiciary would still enforce restrictions on social behavior. Days earlier, he said that the authorities were reviewing the law requiring women to cover their bodies in long, loose clothing and their hair with a headscarf or hijab, and would issue a decision within 15 days. But it was not clear whether the authorities were planning to relax the law. Mr. Montessori's comments appeared to suggest the government was making its first major concession to the protest movement ignited by the death of Massa Amini, 22, in September in the custody of the Morality Police. The unrest has become one of the biggest challenges in decades to Iran's system of authoritarian clerical rule. But the government's silence after Mr. Montessori's remark left analysts puzzled, with some suggesting he had inadvertently drawn attention to a decision the regime wanted to keep quiet for fear of being seen backing down, and others concluding it reflected internal debate at a moment of crisis. There have been many reports from residents of Iran that the morality police have scarcely been seen on the streets since the protests erupted nearly three months ago, and women have increasingly been appearing in public with their hair uncovered. But other security forces, including the notorious Bashir's militiamen, have been beating and arresting women who go out with their hair uncovered. Videos show... And for all the symbolism, the announced abolition of the morality police would probably do little to appease the ordinary Iranians who have been flooding the streets since Ms. Amini's death to demand sweeping change. On Sunday, Iranian women and activists took to social media to dismiss talk of disbanding the force as a propaganda tactic by the government to distract from the larger demands of protesters for an end to the Islamic Republic's rule. The concession would be too little, too late, many said. Shadi Sadr, a prominent human rights lawyer who has fought for women's rights in Iran for decades, said on Twitter that scrapping the morality police would not be big news because, quote, hijab is still compulsory and enforced by other means, such as expulsion from university or school. The protest will not end, she said, until the regime is gone. A member of the Iranian parliament, Jalal Rashidi Kuchi, said that abolishing the the morality police would be a praiseworthy action, but late. Quote, I wish we had seen this action before all these events took place, he added, because we can see how some policies and behaviors damage the nation's stability and the public's trust in the government. Jisoo Nia, a human rights lawyer who leads the board at the U.S.-based Iran Human Rights Documentation Center, said the demonstrations have evolved since the early days after Mizamini was killed. Quote, "...the bottom line," she said, "...is that the protests are now about challenging the entirety of the system, and the extreme gender discriminatory laws that mandate compulsory hijab and restrictions on women's rights to marriage, divorce, custody and inheritance are all still in place. Abolishing the morality police could have a major effect on the state's ability to to control what women wear. Their primary role has been to enforce the laws related to Iran's conservative dress code, which was imposed after the 1979 Islamic Revolution and recently invigorated by the country's new ultra-conservative president. The dress code for women became an ideological pillar of the ruling clerical establishment and is central to its identity. Iranian women have been challenging the dress code since its inception, embracing colorful robes, barely covering their hair in loose wraps, and in some cases letting their headscarves drop onto their shoulders. The enforcement of the code has always been uneven and arbitrary, ranging from warnings to fines and to arrests. When Ms. Amini died after being arrested by the morality police on a Tehran street, nationwide protests soon followed. Quote, women, life, freedom, protesters have chanted. Women have torn off their hijabs, burning them in street bonfires, and have cut their hair in acts of defiance. And university students have chanted, quote, killings after killings to hell with morality police. The demonstrators, fed up with political repression, censorship, corruption, and economic mismanagement, have been taking direct aim at the most powerful man in Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader. Before the unrest, women's rights activists had managed to carve out some flexibility around the hijab, defying the law by exposing their hair in social media videos or in the street. But last year, after the election of a hard-line president, Ibrahim Raisi, the government cracked down. In the months before the protests began, videos of the morality police dragging women into vans bound for re-education centers, in one case, while the woman's mother begged them to stop, stirred fresh outrage among Iranians. The crackdown by security forces against the protest movement has left hundreds dead and the government has threatened harsh punishment for dissent, including executions. Rights groups say that at least 400 people have been killed since the protests began, including 50 minors, and the United Nations has said that about 14,000 people have been arrested. The government says at least 30 members of the security forces have been killed. In September, the United States imposed sanctions on the morality police, The tensions have even seeped into the World Cup in Qatar, where Iranian players tried to find a middle ground between protesters urging them to use their platform and a government intolerant of dissent. The team declined to sing the Iranian national anthem before its opening game, though days later it appeared to grudgingly go through the motions before another match. Next article, Warnock and Walker at Finish Line in Georgia Stick to Their Strategies by Jasmine Uloa, Maya King, and Reed J. Epstein from Atlanta. The closely watched rematch between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker has reached its final hours, capping an intense and turbulent campaign that has prompted debate over issues of race, class, and power in a state with a pivotal role in American politics. On Sunday morning at the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where Mr. Warnock is a senior pastor, he peppered his sermon with thinly-veiled allusions to the election, reminding people multiple times to vote and joking that they had a choice between two candidates whose last name starts with W. Mr. Walker on Sunday urged his supporters to vote, on part of what his campaign has been calling an, quote, evict Warnock bus tour. Quote, if you don't have a friend, go make a friend and get them out to vote, he told supporters. More than 1.8 million Georgians have already cast ballots for Tuesday's runoff, topping early vote records in a contest that will determine whether Mr. Warnock gives Democrats a 51st vote in the Senate, an addition that would offer some procedural benefits For Republicans, a win by Mr. Walker would reassert the state's red streak despite a blue surge two years ago. In 2020, energized Democratic voters propelled Mr. Warnock and John Ossoff into the Senate after fierce showdowns with Republican incumbents swinging the Senate's balance of power. And for the first time in 28 years, Georgia voted for a Democrat for president. The Outcome Tuesday will also provide an early test of the impact of Donald J. Trump's nascent 2024 presidential campaign on other Republican candidates. Mr. Trump has steered clear of Georgia ahead of the runoff after his 2020 loss there and a disappointing midterm season for Republicans. Earlier this year, his chosen primary challengers to Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger were both firmly rejected. Mr. Warnock and Mr. Walker. As Mr. Warnock and Mr. Walker crisscrossed Georgia over the weekend to deliver their closing pitches, the candidates largely stuck to the distinct messages and styles that have guided their bids since the November election, when Mr. Warnock edged out Mr. Walker but fell short of the 50% threshold, sending the race into a runoff. At energetic rallies filled with hundreds of chanting supporters, Mr. Warnock focused on promoting both Democrats' policy victories and his willingness to work with Republicans. And he sought to mobilize the black, Asian, Latino, and white working-class voters who two years ago propelled him and Mr. Ossoff to victories. On Sunday, Mr. Warnock began his morning behind the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist, presiding over a service. Hundreds packed the pews, including longtime parishioners, members of Congress, and members of his fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. He finished the day with a pair of campaign rallies in Athens, home to the University of Georgia, including one at a student center named for Zell Miller, the last Georgia Democrat to win a Senate seat before 2021. While Senate Democrats have already clinched control of the chamber, a Warnock victory would provide them crucial insurance during a two-year period in which two moderate colleagues, Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, will be facing re-election. At their first Sunday evening stop in Athens, Mr. Warnock and Mr. Ossoff stressed the narrowly divided nature of the Senate and their votes for key Democratic priorities. Quote, These days I think about the fact that that had we not stood up the way we did in 2021, there wouldn't be a woman on the Supreme Court named Catania Brown Jackson, Mr. Warnock told University of Georgia students, referring to the justice the Senate confirmed to the court in April. So let's keep on fighting. Yet when asked later about the difference in Washington between Democrats having 50 votes or 51, Mr. Warnock sought to lessen the national stakes of his race. Quote, I'm focused on the difference that it will mean for Georgia, he said. Quote, a senator serves for six years, and in Georgia would represent 11 million people. So this race is not just about this cycle or the next. It's a six-year proposition.
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Mr. Walker, at his more subdued events, mostly stuck to retail politics and one-on-one conversations with voters, as he and his allies have sought to tie the senator to President Biden's agenda, focusing more on cultural issues than policy points. On Saturday, Mr. Walker made a stop in Atlanta, where he shook hands and took selfies with football fans at a sparsely attended tailgating party. On Sunday, he stumped with Senators Tim Scott of South Carolina and John Kennedy of Louisiana in Loganville, a suburb one hour east of Atlanta. His speech did not stray from its usual themes, as he recounted his biography and added a handful of rambling anecdotes about Heaven and Hell and the Star-Spangled Banner. His closing message, however, was a reminder to vote. Come rain, sun, or shine, he said, we've got to get out there and let them know we're sick and tired of this. The closing scenes encapsulated the candidates' divergent strategies through much of the 2022 midterm cycle. While Mr. Warnock kept a packed schedule of public events and press interviews, Mr. Walker preferred a less visible approach. But Mr. Walker was expected to pick up the speed of his events on Monday, with several bus tour stops in the rural northern reaches of the state. Mr. Warnock on Monday is planning to speak in the morning to union workers and Georgia Tech students in the afternoon and hold a closing rally in Atlanta. Mr. Walker's pace in the race's closing stretch has caused consternation among his allies. Some have feared that Mr. Walker, who was endorsed by Mr. Trump, is running out of time to draw in moderate conservatives and black voters who make up about one-third of Georgia's electorate and appear to overwhelmingly support Mr. Warnock. But if white Republicans across the state show up for Mr. Walker, it could propel him to victory. For these reasons, the race has stirred conversations about race, class, and power. Mr. Warnock and Mr. Walker are two African-American men with strong ties to the Deep South, vying in a runoff contest, a process created decades ago to thwart black candidates. Their matchup is making history. Georgia has never had two black major party nominees compete for the Senate, according to political scientists. But for many black voters, the moment has been dampened by the political ascendancy of Mr. Walker, whom they do not view as representing the interests of black people. Their contest has also been remarkably personal, as the candidates have traded attacks on their family ties and qualifications, and Mr. Walker has fended off accusations of violent behavior and carpetbagging. Georgia has been under the nation's political focus since President Biden won the state in 2020, with a narrow victory that nonetheless marked the shifting politics of the South. The population in Atlanta and across the state has surged, particularly among young people and people of color. Some of Atlanta's metropolitan area precincts, which were once Republican strongholds in the northern suburbs, in recent years have swung from red to blue to purple. On Friday, the Democratic National Committee's Rules Committee took a step toward making Georgia an early primary state, further cementing its status as a political player. The democratic and political transformation in Georgia, as in other states across the country, has been at the root of far-right conspiracy theories and false allegations of fraud over the 2020 election, and many voters, and black voters in particular, have seen this election as having high stakes for the future of voting rights and elections. Lines at some polling sites in Atlanta late last week were so long that people had to make multiple attempts to vote. On Sunday, Hundreds gathered at Ebenezer Baptist Church for its Sunday service in the last Sunday that Mr. Warnock would preside over before Election Day. As a message reminding, the crowd of Tuesday's election flashed across the screen behind the pulpit. The crowd erupted in applause. Quote, don't ask me about Tuesday, he said at one point during the sermon. I don't know what God's going to do tomorrow. Next article, A New Clash Between Faith and Gay Rights Arrives at a Changed Supreme Court by Adam Liptick from Littleton, Colorado. Ten years ago, a Colorado baker named Jack Phillips turned away a gay couple who had asked him for a wedding cake, saying that a state law forbidding discrimination based on sexual orientation must yield to his faith. The dispute, a white-hot flashpoint in the culture wars, made it to the Supreme Court. But Justice Anthony M. Kennedy's narrow majority opinion in 2018 did not settle the question of whether the First Amendment permits discrimination by businesses open to the public based on their owners' religious convictions. Indeed, the opinion acknowledged that the court had merely kicked the can down the road and would have to decide some future controversy involving facts similar to these. That controversy has now arrived, and the facts are indeed similar. A graphic designer named Laurie Smith, who works just a few miles from Mr. Phillips' bakery, Masterpiece Cake Shop, has challenged the same Colorado law on the same grounds. Quote, He's an artist, Miss Phillips said of Mr. Phillips, Ms. Smith said of Mr. Phillips, I'm also an artist. We shouldn't be punished for creating consistently with our convictions. The basic arguments in the case, which will be made before the Supreme Court on Monday, are as familiar as they are polarizing. On one side are people who say the government should not force them to violate their principles to make a living. On the other are same-sex couples and others who say they are entitled to equal treatment from businesses open to the public. Both sides say that the consequences of the court's ruling could be enormous, though for different reasons. Ms. Smith's supporters say a ruling for the state would allow the government to force all sorts of artists to state things at odds with their beliefs. Her opponents say a ruling in her favor would blow a hole through anti-discrimination laws and allow businesses engaged in expression to refuse service to, say, black people or Muslims based on odious but sincerely held convictions. The court that will hear those arguments has been transformed since the 2018 decision. After Justice Kennedy's retirement later that year and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death in 2020, The Supreme Court has shifted to the right and been exceptionally receptive to claims of religious freedom. Moreover, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, Justice Clarence Thomas filed a concurring opinion calling for the elimination of the right to same-sex marriage. Supporters of gay rights fear that a ruling for Ms. Smith will undermine that right marking the marriages of same-sex couples as second-class unions unworthy of legal protection. The court had earlier opportunities to revisit the larger issues in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, but it rejected appeals from a florist in Washington State and the owners of a bakery in Oregon, who said they should not be required to create works for same-sex unions. The decision to hear Ms. Smith's case was probably driven by several factors an increasingly assertive six-justice conservative supermajority, a sense that Ms. Smith's designs were more likely to be expression protected by the First Amendment and the desire of at least some justices to undo or limit Obergefell v. Hodges, the 2015 decision establishing a right to same-sex marriage. Ms. Smith, in an interview in her modest but cheerful studio in an office building in a suburb of Denver, sat near a plaque that echoed a Bible verse, quote, I am God's masterpiece. She said she was happy to create graphics and websites for anyone, including LGBTQ people. But her Christian faith, she said, did not allow her to create messages celebrating same-sex marriages, quote, When I chose to start my own business as an artist to create custom expression, she said, I did not surrender my First Amendment rights. Phil Weiser, Colorado's Attorney General, countered that there is no constitutional right to discriminate. Once you open up your doors to the public, you have to serve everybody, he said. You can't turn people away based on who they are. The court decided Masterpiece Cake Shop, on an idiosyncratic ground that is not at issue in the new case, three o three creative versus Alinus, number twenty one four seven six, Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority in twenty eighteen, said Mr. Phillips had been treated unfairly by members of a civil rights commission who had made comments hostile to religion. Mr. Phillips limited victory left unresolved whether he has a constitutional right to refuse to create custom cakes for LGBTQ people. Indeed, a Colorado appeals court recently heard arguments in his appeal of a ruling against him in a case brought by a transgender woman. In the Supreme Court, Mr. Phillips had pursued claims based on his rights to the free exercise of religion and the freedom of speech. Ms. Smith also asked the Supreme Court to consider both of those grounds, but the justices agreed to decide only, quote, whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the Free Speech Clause of the First Amendment. Both Mr. Phillips and Ms. Smith are represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative Christian law firm and advocacy group that has litigated many cases for clients opposed to abortion, contraception coverage, and gay and transgender rights. Mr. Weiser, Colorado's Attorney General, said there was an important difference between the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and the new one. Mr. Phillips refused to serve an actual couple, David Mullins and Charlie Craig, who filed civil rights charges saying they had been demeaned and humiliated. The details of the encounter, he said, mattered in assessing the legal issues. Ms. Smith, by contrast, sued before facing any punishment. Quote, this is a made-up case, Mr. Weiser said. Quote, there haven't been any websites that have been made for a wedding. There hasn't been anyone turned away. We're in a world of pure hypotheticals. Ms. Smith countered that she should not have to risk fines for exercising her rights. Quote, if I continue creating for weddings consistent with my beliefs, the state of Colorado intends to fully come after me, she said. Quote, rather than wait to be punished, I decided to take a stand to protect my First Amendment rights. I shouldn't have to be punished before I challenge an unjust law. The two Colorado cases differ in another way, at least in the eyes of some legal scholars, notably Dale Carpenter, a law professor at Southern Methodist University. In the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, Professor Carpenter filed a brief supporting the gay couple along with Eugene Vulloch of the University of California, Los Angeles. But in the new case, they took Ms. Smith's side. Professor Carpenter did so, he explained in an interview in part because he has devoted his career to the cause of advancing gay rights. Quote, It seems to me that the freedom of speech has been essential to the cause of LGBT rights, he said. It could not have advanced without the freedoms that are secured by the First Amendment. I take these things to go hand in hand. Mr. Phillips' cakes did not deserve First Amendment protection, Mr. Carpenter added, but Ms. Smith's graphics and websites do. Cake making is neither an inherently expressive nor a traditionally expressive medium, Professor Carpenter said. People make cakes for taste or nutrition. Ms. Smith's design work was different, he said. It involved, he said, activities that are inherently expressive, including through the usual mediums of communication like writing or speaking. Kristen K. Wagoner, a lawyer with Alliance Defending Freedom, agreed that the two cases were different. This is an easier case than Masterpiece, she said. Here we have pure speech. David D. Cole, the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union, who represented the couple in Masterpiece Cake Shop, said that that was not the point. So long as Ms. Smith's company was open to the public and selling a given service, he said, it must abide by state anti-discrimination laws. A ruling in favor of Miss Smith and her company, 303 Creative, would have devastating consequences, Mr. Cole said.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
1: We will live in a world in which any business that has an expressive service can put up a sign that says, quote, women not served, Jews not served, black people not served, and claim a First Amendment right to do so, he said. I don't think any of us want to live in that world, and I don't think the First Amendment requires us to live in that world. A divided three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit in Denver ruled against mrs smith even as it accepted most of her arguments quote, "creation of wedding websites is pure speech" judge mary beck briscoe wrote for the majority "and the colorado anti-discrimination law compels ms smith and her company" quote "to create custom websites they otherwise would not" that meant judge briscoe wrote that the anti-discrimination law had to survive the most demanding form of judicial scrutiny one requiring the state to demonstrate a compelling interest and to show that the law was narrowly tailored to address that interest, Judge Briscoe said Colorado had proved both. Quote, Colorado has a compelling interest in protecting both the dignity, interests, and members of marginalized groups and their material interests in accessing the commercial marketplace, Judge Briscoe wrote. In dissent, Chief Judge Timothy M. Timkovich said, quote, the majority takes the remarkable and novel stance that the government may force Ms. Smith to produce messages that violate her conscience. Quote, it seems we have moved from live and let live, he wrote, to you can't say that. Next article, twin friends of Eric Adams are dogged by allegations and unpaid debts by Michael Rothfield, William K. Rashbaum, and Susan C. Beachy. Vedim Shubetarov, a 35-year-old businessman, thought he had stumbled on the perfect opportunity when he met a charismatic pair of identical twins in Brooklyn. The brothers, Johnny and Robert Petroscience, Or successful bar operators who routinely dropped thousands of dollars at a Russian restaurant in the Flatiron District were driven around in a Mercedes-Benz and most impressively counted the new Brooklyn borough president, Eric Adams, as a good friend. When the twins invited Mr. Shubaderov to invest in a catering company in 2014, he plunked down $350,000, virtually his entire life savings. Quote, They wined and dined me said Mr. Shubadurov, They built up an image of super-successful entrepreneurs with deep political connections. He never saw his money again. Time and again over the past decade, the Petroscience brothers have boasted of their friendship with Mr. Adams, New York City's mayor, while courting partners like Mr. Shubaderov for a range of ventures. The relationship has helped them gloss over something less savory. Both pleaded guilty in 2014 to financial crimes related to insurance claims. By all accounts, Mr. Adams has maintained an exceptionally close relationship with the brothers, dining regularly at restaurants they have opened, buying an apartment near their homes in Fort Lee, New Jersey, attending parties with them, even introducing them to his mother before she died. The brothers, for their part have generated tens of thousands of dollars for Mr. Adams' campaigns by holding fundraising events and enlisting friends to solicit contributions. The mayor, who declined to be interviewed, has repeatedly defended the friendship, saying he does not believe in judging people on their worst mistake. But a New York Times investigation has found that the Petrosciences' dubious business practices did not end with their felony convictions in federal court. Interviews with more than 30 people who know the twins or have had dealings with them, and a review of thousands of pages of court filings, corporate documents, and other records reveal them to be aggressive operators who have engaged in a continuing pattern of questionable dealings in the years since Mr. Adams befriended them. In the past eight years, the Petrosciences have been accused in lawsuits of diverting funds intended for one project to another, and of breaking agreements with investors, landlords, and lenders, all while socializing with Mr. Adams and trading on the relationship to attract new opportunities. They appear to have taken pains to obscure their roles in a string of restaurants and other ventures, identifying themselves as owners to customers and employees, and in some documents, but not others, including paperwork filed with the New York State Liquor Authority, which bars felons from owning businesses that serve alcohol. Companies they have been associated with owe at least $1.7 million in unpaid taxes, penalties, and interest, and they have been accused of failing to pay another $1.5 million in rent, largely during the coronavirus pandemic. Some of those firms took out $1.8 million in federal loans intended to preserve jobs during the pandemic, but interviews with people familiar with the the businesses raise questions about the accuracy of employment figures stated in the loan applications, which are now under review by federal investigators, officials said. And in 2019, they recruited Frank Carone, who is now Mr. Adams's chief of staff, and others to finance the acquisition of a debt-ridden laboratory in Texas. The venture ultimately collapsed, costing Mr. Carone and the other backers significant money. There is no indication that Mr. Adams has ever done business with the brothers or has any insight into their practices. But his close friendship with them underscores his penchant for surrounding himself with people who have troubled pasts and ignoring any ethical questions that such relationships might pose, even if his friends might have something to gain. Quote, that's why people buy time with presidents and mayors, said John Caney, executive director of the watchdog group Reinvent Albany. Quote, it's because they want to be associated with their power, and it is brand building. It is validation. As Mr. Adams has ascended, the petrosciences, 41-year-old Armenians from Turkmenistan, have risen too. Having immigrated to the United States as teenagers in 1996, they now operate five restaurants and have described plans for two more. Mr. Adams, sixty two, has spent many evenings at their showpiece, Osteria Labia on West Fifty second Street, visiting fourteen times in June alone. Often he was ushered in after other customers had gone home. In an interview, Robert Petroscience said he did not believe that he or his brother had done anything wrong since their convictions although he acknowledged that others might chafe at their practices in the rough-and-tumble restaurant business. Far from being helped, he said, the brothers' business interests had been negatively affected by Mr. Adams' election as mayor, which he said cost them a lease for a planned venue because of reporting on the federal indictments that, quote, crushed our world years ago. Quote, Obviously, when he became a mayor, he got so much attention, Mr. Petroscience said, Quote, but to me, he's my friend, Eric. He's our friendly friend, Eric, my mentor, my, you know, the guy that I look up to. Mr. Adams, who was a state senator when he met the twins about a decade ago at a Brooklyn restaurant they ran at the time, has said he became a mentor to them after their convictions. He is closer to Johnny, whose legal name is Zahn, and who friends say is the more outgoing of the twins, while Robert is quieter and more businesslike. The mayor's spokesman, Maxwell Young, said that Mr. Adams knew nothing of the twins' dealings and did not discuss their businesses with them. He added that Mr. Adams bought an apartment in Fort Lee because he was drawn to its views of the New York City skyline, not because the twins lived there. Quote, the mayor does not judge people based on allegations reported in the papers, and he will not do so here, Mr. Young said. Quote, as a general matter, of course, the mayor expects all businesses to comply with all rules and regulations. But people who have had dealings with the brothers said that they have not always played by the rules. Quote, they go show you, oh, this is my restaurant, that is my restaurant, and this is my business, and I know this guy, and I know that guy, and I'm friends with the mayor, said Dr. Stephen Rippa, a Brooklyn dentist who, like Mr. Shubatarov, claimed in a lawsuit that the twins had cheated him out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. quote, "Then they start going into business with somebody and they just screw them over." The scheme that led to the twins' felony convictions involved shell companies created in the names of foreign exchange students, prosecutors said. The brothers used the firms to bill auto insurers for hundreds of thousands of dollars in false and inflated medical claims, according to an indictment filed in federal court in Brooklyn. Standing before a judge in February 2014, they pleaded guilty to making false reports at a check-cashing business and agreed to forfeit their share of $660,000 in ill-gotten gains. But, they said, they did not have the money. Quote, Who has the money here? The judge asked, quote, lawyers, Johnny Petroscience replied. Even so, the brothers started another business soon after, an Italian restaurant in Brooklyn called Forno Rosso. More accusations of wrongdoing quickly followed. It started with the investment by Mr. Shubadorov, who came to suspect that the brothers had used some of the 350000 he gave them for the catering business, which never materialized, to open Forno Rosso instead. Incensed, he went to the restaurant and threatened one of the twins, he is not sure which, with a lawsuit. Quote, he just laughed in my face while sipping his expensive whiskey, Mr. Shubaterov said. Banking records disclosed in the suit he subsequently filed appear to partially support his suspicions, showing $200,000 moving to companies controlled by the twins and a close associate, including one form that, one firm that Robert Petroscience had used in the insurance scheme. Some of it went toward repaying a loan they took out for Forno Rosso. Robert Petroscience said he did not recall meeting Mr. Shibadarov and that none of his money was used for Forno Rosso, but he otherwise declined to comment, citing Mr. Shibadarov's ongoing suit. When Forno Rosso opened in November 2014, Mr. Adams, Brooklyn's borough president at the time, put it on his public schedule and attended the event, holding a red ribbon for Johnny Petroscience to cut. When the pandemic struck in 2020, Forno Rosso, like other restaurants, shut down for months and then reopened only for takeout and delivery. In April 2020 and February 2021, it secured two Federal Paycheck Protection Program loans totaling $550,000, agreeing to use the money to keep 31 people employed, But Forno-Rosso's staffing never reached that level because the restaurant did not fully reopen for in-person dining, according to two people familiar with the restaurant, who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive business matters. Robert Petroscience disputed the statements. Both loans were ultimately forgiven, but the Federal Small Business Administration has since directed its inspector general to review them, officials said. The inspector general was also investigating loans to two other restaurants operated by the brothers that claimed to employ exactly 31 people apiece and received another $724,000, officials said. Robert Petroscience said the information on the loan applications was accurate and that the money went to employee wages. It was not used to pay some of Forno Rosso's other bills. In October 2021, the owners of the restaurant's landlord company, Clock Tower Properties, sued to recover what it said was 500000 in unpaid rent, utilities, and other costs. Robert Petroscience said the restaurant had stopped paying rent because the landlord refused to reduce it when the pandemic hit, a statement the landlord disputed. With the lease expiring and unlikely to be renewed, Akiva Ofstein, a lawyer, friend, and associate of the twins, who was listed as the restaurant's sole owner, did not pay state sales and withholding taxes. This concludes the reading of the New York Times for today. Your reader for today has been Mary Fullington. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and now please stay tuned. For continued programming on Radio I.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?